The following Knowledge at Warden podcast is brought to you by Vanguard, offering investments designed to help individuals and institutions reach their financial goals. Visit Vanguard.com. Additional support for this podcast comes from Warden Executive Education. For more information on Warden's executive course, Strategic Persuasion, the Art and Science of Selling Ideas, please visit executiveeducation.warden.upenn.edu. Bill George, probably best known in the business community for his former position as chairman and CEO of Medtronic, is also an author. In 2003, he published a book called Authentic Leadership, and this month he published a second book titled True North, Discover Your Authentic Leadership, described by George and his co-author Peter Sims as a, quote, guide to locating the internal compass that guides you successfully through life. End quote. George is also a professor of management practice at Harvard Business School. He has been recognized as Executive of the Year by the Academy of Management, Director of the Year by the National Association of Corporate Directors, and was included in a book by Knowledge at Wharton called Lasting Leadership, What You Can Learn from the Top 25 Business People of Our Times. We asked him and Michael Yusim, head of Wharton's Center for Leadership and Change Management, to talk about authentic leadership, both the book and the concept. Thank you, Mike and Bill, for joining us. Bill, I'll start out. How is this book different from the hundreds and hundreds of other leadership books out there? Well, this is a book on uh, leadership development that results from the largest uh, study ever done of how leaders develop. We had about 3,000 pages of transcripts that came out of 125 interviews with people that we deem to be both successful and authentic leaders. And talking, in, we were very surprised by what they were telling us because we thought going in that they were going to tell us the traits, characteristics, and leadership styles that made them successful. And instead, what they told us where their passions came from their life stories. And it took a little while for this to sink in. Like at first it seemed like mush, but the more we got into it, it was so consistent that people wanted to talk about how they captured their passions from a crucible life experience, a transformative experience, or just a growing up experience. Like an example of that is Dick Kovacevic, the uh, chairman and CEO of... Uh, of Wells Fargo, arguably the most successful commercial banker in the last 20 years in terms of his record. He didn't want to talk about that. He wanted to talk about what it was like growing up in a sawmill town where people were losing their jobs and no one had ever gone to college. And he played sports three hours a day, said he learned a lot more about leadership uh, in the athletic field and working in the corner grocery store where he also worked three hours a day than he ever did at Stanford Business School. Yeah, because that's And he's tried to take that model and translate it into Wells Fargo. In other words, he he saw the idea of trying to make Wells Fargo the most consumer-friendly bank in every small town, not just to, quote, big global banking, but be very friendly and also create an executive team of people much stronger than he was. As he said, if you had 11 quarterbacks on your football team, you would lose every game. So he's trying to create people who are really good in every other position, and I think he's been quite successful. Bill, I like the phrase you just used, which is that leadership does emerge out of life story. You referenced moments that are like crucibles of experience. As you listen to the 125 people tell their story, talk about those formative moments, is there a common pattern to what really seemed to stand out? Or are there a couple, are there a couple themes that really do stand out when people begin to talk about those moments when they really made, in a sense, that self-discovery, came to appreciate where they were heading in life? 
Mike, I think it's a situation that caused you to go deep inside yourself and say, who am I? Who am I in this world? Where do I fit? Do I matter? And then from that, you can find your passions to lead. And that's where the passions to lead come from. At least that's in our experience. That's who we learned. Uh, and Andrea Jung had this you know, incredible passion for empowering women in her life because of coming out of this very strict Chinese dis- uh, disciplined family. And, you know, one time she was destined to be CEO of Neiman Marcus. At 31, she got the executive VP job. She quit cold turkey four years later and went off to uh, have with no job. And a year later, she joined Avon because she said she didn't want to just provide luxury goods to the upper one-tenth of one percent of American women. And as soon as she got to Avon and got to the top, she changed the mission from cosmetics to empowering women. And this was her passion. So now you listen to her talk. She came to my classroom and listened to her talk about having a million people that work for her in Brazil and how exciting it is to go down the Amazon and everyone waits for the retail store to come to them. And But you see her passion. She said, if I don't have the passion, I can't be an authentic leader. If I don't have the passion for this business. Let me make this uh, personal here. You led Medtronic for 10 years. Medtronic, as I recall, in revenue, 10 times the size when you stepped down after 10 years as chief executive compared to when you began. So surely in your own background is one of those crucible moments. What's the essence of your life story that helped you prepare for those 10 years at Medtronic? Mike, I talk in the book about my life as a series of crucibles. Uh, It started out, I guess, as a three-year-old when my father saw himself as not successful, wanted me to be CEO of a big company. But don't be like me, son. So I'm carrying that forward for the next 20, 30, 40 years. Uh, Pretty hard not to be like your father, uh, but thinking I want to be CEO of a really big company. And I remember running for office in high school and college seven times and losing every time because it was all about me. It was all about my ambition and getting ahead. And finally, a group of seniors, I went to Georgia Tech, pulled me aside and said, you know, Bill, there's a reason why you're losing these elections because no one wants to follow you because you're not interested in them. And that was easy to understand intellectually. It was much harder to internalize and to try to develop myself. Uh, In my mid-20s, I had two very uh, traumatic experiences that brought me to the the marrow of life. One was my mother's death at 24, and I was very close to my mother, not my father. And she died suddenly, never got a chance to say goodbye. I'm an only child, and I was very much alone. 18 months later, uh, uh, I was engaged to be married, happy as could be, thought I had the world made. And three weeks before my wedding date, uh, my fiance died of a malignant brain tumor, totally unexpectedly. I had been having headaches, but uh, it was diagnosed as something else. And she was gone and, again, felt very much alone. But it also caused me to reflect deeply about what's life all about and what I want my leadership to be about. But even so, I still had this propensity to go off and track this goal of being a CEO. And I remember going to Honeywell, a great global company, and being on course to being CEO and taking on a series of turnarounds. And finally, I looked at myself in the mirror one day, coming home on a beautiful day like today. It was in the fall. And uh, I was miserable. Why am I miserable when I think I'm supposed to be happy? And I went and talked to my wife about it. And she said, well, I've been trying to tell you this for a year. You just didn't want to listen. Uh, And I realized I was chasing my ego of having the CEO's title of a major global corporation. Three times I had passed up the opportunity to go to Medtronic and to be president of the company. 
because I thought it was too small, maybe too small for my ego. And I went back and talked to the folks at Medtronic, talked to Earl Bach and the founder, and realized this is a wonderful company with a mission I can embrace, values I can embrace. And I remember walking into Medtronic for the very first day in April of 1989, and I felt like I was coming home. As my favorite uh, folk singer John Denver says, I was coming home to a place I'd never been before. And I just felt like it was a place where I can be me. I can be alive and I can be who I am. And people appreciate that who I am. I don't have to be something different than what I am. I can be the authentic me. And it never changed for the next 12, 13 years. It was just a, I feel blessed to have been there. It was just a thrill to have the opportunity. And the company did far better than I ever anticipated it would. So maybe I could ask a very uh, obvious sort of question. What, what is an authentic leader and how do you become one? I think it's very straightforward. You have to be yourself. You have to be the genuine person. And you have to recognize that I'm a unique person, and so I'm not trying to be like you. I'm trying to be who I am. But you have to develop yourself as a leader, and that's why we wrote True North, because my first book, Authentic Leadership, did not tell people how to develop themselves. If you understand the purpose of your leadership, you have to gain a deep level of self-awareness. You can't just, as we say at Harvard, follow the herd and everyone's going into this profession or that for you have to say what it is you want. I say that at Wharton too. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Um, and you have to test your values under pressure. You know, anyone can tell you they have good values. You can even practice good values when things are going well. That's pretty easy. It's when you're really under pressure. And do you deviate from your true north by because you get so much pressure from Wall Street or you get seduced by big stock option gains and keeping your stock price up? Or do you hang in there and stay true to what you believe in under pressure? Uh, it has to do with how do you how do you lead? Do you lead from the heart or purely from the head? Are you chasing money, fame, power, and glory, or can you balance those motivations, which all of us have to extend? I certainly do, with the intrinsic motivations of making difference in the lives of others, helping develop people, maybe changing the world. You know, whether it's like Bill Gates is trying to change the world with his uh, contributions to third world or developing country disease, and so I think it's really important not that we we should issue the values of uh, the motivations of ex- extrinsic, but we also need to have something at the end of the day, what makes a difference. I think it's about how you build relationships. So Bill, once you have the, in a sense, the place that you want to be in, that you've come to understand who you are, authenticity, I think is a great phrase to capture the essence of being who you are, bringing out the best, using the best of the talent you bring to a setting. You also write, though, about the importance of helping people in a setting understand the significance of what they're doing, the meaning for which they come to work every day. At Medtronic, not that it was easy, easier there than anywhere else, but there was an advantage you had there that people working for you did take pride in the fact that people on Earth are walking around alive today because they have a Medtronic pacemaker. The meaning was pretty obvious there. As you get away from medical products, maybe from medicine in general, could you talk a, a bit about how people, your kind of position, can infuse the workplace with that kind of meaning, help people appreciate the significance of what they're doing when it's not obvious that there is that kind of meaning or significance to the work they're engaged in? One of the people we interviewed, Mike, is Dave Dillon, the uh, chairman and CEO of Kroger. And Dave told us about his desire to 
and how he leads to bring people together around a common purpose of making everyone's life a little bit better that day in the Kroger store. And that sounds really simple, almost simplistic. But, you know, it, carries, it gets carried out when you go approach the, the stock boy and he walks you four aisles down to find what you want and just say it's over there. And it's that caring thing that he feels makes his employees or minimum wage employees, many of them, feel like, you know, they made someone's day a little bit better. And that's a rallying point. Howard Schultz has that rallying point at Starbucks in creating a safe place for people to come where you can establish a relationship between the employees and the customers. And, you know, they aren't saving any lives at uh, $3.50 for a cup of coffee, but they really feel like they're creating that kind of environment. So I think, Mike, it can be translated into everyone. Back to my example, Dick Kovacevic, he feels like, you know, when people come to our, our bank, we don't want to just give you that home loan. We actually want to talk to you about, have you thought about building up a savings account for your kids to, so they can go to college? And he feels they're doing them a favor by helping build a secure financial future. So I think it's not limited to the more dramatic things like saving lives, but I think that is the leader's job in the century. It's not telling people what to do. It's bringing them together around a shared context, a shared set of values, and then empowering them to lead. And I think for too often we've had the idea of people and organizations taking direction or following the leader's guidance. I think today the great leaders are figuring out that context, Mike, but then being able to empower other people to lead at all levels of their organization, even people that have no direct reports. You know, in your observation of people that you work with at Medtronic, you serve on a couple of boards now of major U.S. firms as you work with MBA students. Everybody is drawn to work because of the need for salary, good compensation, promotion opportunities, getting ahead. You're saying, though, I think, if I hear it correctly, at the end of the day or maybe even at the beginning of the day, ultimately people do come for purpose and significance. Is that a fair summary? They're looking for meaning and significance. And frankly, they have options to work somewhere else. They aren't locked in to work for your organization. And most of them are never going to be millionaires. We think about all the people when you're around business school students, they all think they're going to be wealthy. But the vast majority of people working in organizations are never going to be wealthy. But they want to feel like, hey, my time was well spent. It wasn't just a job. You spend more time at work than you do anything else in your life, including sleeping. Don't you have a right to meaning and significance? So at the end of the day, whether you've made a billion dollars or you've put away just enough for your grandkids' college education, what are you gonna what are you gonna leave behind? Let me ask a two part question here. Near the end of the book, you say the hardest person to lead is yourself, and then you also add a piece of advice, which is don't wait to be asked to lead. So could you expand on both of those statements? In my study of leaders who have failed, and I've studied a lot of the leaders, I've known many of the leaders who have failed, in every case, it wasn't that they lacked the ability to lead others, they lacked the ability to lead themselves. A guy like Dick Grasso could have been a great leader, but he got so caught up with needing the money, not because he needed the money to live on, he didn't live on it, he needed it for prestige. He couldn't lead himself. It's just a tragedy to see this happen to people who are otherwise excellent leaders to get so caught, caught up in that. But, you know, I think you never learn about yourself, Mike, until you get into the game. Maybe you can do it through college leadership experience. Maybe you do it through an outward bound experience. But, you know, you got to get in there in business and do it and not just stand on the sidelines 
and wait to uh, for to be tapped on the shoulder or do a brilliant analysis. I'm really encouraging people get down there, get roughed up a little bit, make some mistakes. The game looks a lot different when you're in it and you get a bloody nose. And so learn to fail early rather than fail at the top. Fail early and bounce back and learn from that. It's, failure is not a bad thing. It's a, an opportunity to learn from your experiences. So if a young person working for you says, I hear what you're saying, I should get into the game, I shouldn't wait to be asked to take on a leadership responsibility, what does that tangibly mean uh, in the office or on the, the floor of the, of the company? Well, it depends on how you see your role. I mean, if you're a creative, innovative person, go and innovate and say, hey, I got this great idea. Will you give me money to fund it for the next six months just to get it going? You know, maybe you are out working with your customers and you have an insight about that or you can how to develop that customer base. Or maybe you're a manufacturing person and you see why the quality is repeatedly a problem in this product and you take the initiative and I think we need organizations where people are rewarded for that kind of initiative, not punished, because they're the ones that know the most about the work. The reality today is people, the people doing the work know a lot more about their jobs than their bosses ever will. And so it's not up to the boss to tell them how to do it. We don't have an apprenticeship system anymore. Uh, but how else are you going to learn until you can make some mistakes and learn it's really okay? The world didn't come to an end. It's not because I'm a bad person we made mistakes. No. We tried out this new product. We put it out to market. And it didn't work. Hey, maybe we can go out and learn why it didn't work. Earl Bakken, the founder of Medtronic, has a philosophy of, he calls it, ready, fire, aim. You know, get ready, do your plan, but then jump into the market, fire off, get out there, get feedback from your customers, and then adjust your aim. In other words, adjust your plan. If it didn't work, how can we adjust it to do a lot better rather than plan, 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 or aim, aim, aim for years? And by the time you get into the game, like many big companies do, Markets passed you by. I mean, look at the products coming out of Silicon Valley. A lot of those are quite imperfect when they first come out, but they have Rev 1, Rev 2. You know, they're continually being improved and they just get better and better. And if you get into the game late, you never know quite where to get in because you're, the leader keeps getting ahead of you. This book seems to be doing well and, and getting good reviews. Why do you think it resonates so much with readers? I think people want to be authentic, and I think they want to know how. And unlike my first book, which didn't tell them how, it's got a whole series of exercises, and I think it, it gives them the opportunity to take responsibility for their own development. Too often we thought of leadership as something you're born with, and I reject that idea. Of course you're born with gifts, but you have to develop yourself. It's, to me, it's much like a championship athlete or a, uh, a great cellist who wants to play at Carnegie Hall. You know, these days you can qualify to play at Carnegie Hall if you're 15 years old because they have the screen so they can't see how young you are or you're a female or you're a minority. So you get selected on the basis of your playing ability. But you wouldn't think about going there unless you practice every day, would you? You wouldn't think about riding in the Tour de France unless you practice every day. Well, it's the same thing with leaders. They need to practice their leadership. I think for too long we've been going off to company training programs and they tell us how to do it. Well, all they're doing is socializing us and try to bring us in line con to conform with the company's norms. And you find most of the great leaders are two standard deviations outside the company's norms because they don't conform. And yet, so by forcing people to conform, we get a nice, happy social place, but nothing ever happens. And so I think we need to empower people to develop themselves. Now, that needs help. You need a mentor. You need a support team around you. You need to avail yourself of the resources out there, either academic resources or education resources in your company. You need to ask for the experience to get into the game. 
but until you do that, uh, I don't think you can really test your leadership and learn whether you can lead and learn from your experiences. Well, one of the things I found very interesting about your book is that you went out and talked to pe people who were uh, leaders at different ages. Mm -hmm. uh, and I wondered if you, when you spoke to people who were in their 60s and 70s, whether they approached leadership differently than people who are in their 20s and 30s, but who are also leaders. We, we looked at a minimum of 15 people per decade. And actually, the differences were less than we thought because there was clearly a context. But I think the leadership journey is now widely appreciated as changing. In the old days, you, you know, our parents' generation, we were, they were darn glad to have a job. They'd come out of depression, two world wars. So you go to work at a company at 22, you come loyal to the company, you pick up your pension at 62 or 65 and your 40-year pin, and go off and retire and probably die before you're 70, uh, at least the men. Today, all that's changed. People are going to change jobs, change companies seven to eight times during their lifetime. But the journey is different. Most people here at Wharton and other places aren't starting their real career until about 30. They're getting great experiences. They may work for Morgan Stanley or Goldman Sachs or Bain or McKinsey or private equity shop, but they aren't really plunging into their real career until they're 30. And then they have 30 years, as we see it, that kind of phase two. The first 30 years is preparation. Then the next 30 years is you're actually leading generally with one organization. But many of these older people now are no longer retiring and going to Florida. They're going into a period of wisdom and generativity. So they want to continue giving back. But typically they leave their principal career leadership post and have the opportunity to spread that leadership across many different fields, whether it's through teaching whether it's through community service organization, whether it's through serving on boards, whether it's through investing in companies, or uh, whether it's through writing and sharing their wisdom. I think it's a wonderful thing. We had John Whitehead the other day, the former chairman of uh, Goldman Sachs, at one of my kickoff events. And he's been in every field you can imagine. He's been head of 12 nonprofits. Uh, but John, is, he said, I'm going to have my 85th birthday. He's still going strong. He's still taking on assignment after assignment because he's so passionate about trying to change leadership. In 2003, when you published Authentic Leadership, you wrote an article in Fortune magazine uh, in which you said that the business world had run off the rails, mistaking wealth for success and image for leadership. You said, quote, my generation of CEOs began listening to the wrong people, Wall Street analysts, media pundits, economists, compensation consultants, public relations staff, hedge funds, all the players in what I called the game. Isn't this even truer these days than it was four years ago? It's true that those pressures are stronger than they were four years ago. Certainly hedge funds, the power of private equity hedge funds, and the shortening of holding periods of stock, which has gotten even shorter, has put enormous pressure. But I think the new group of CEOs, who I call the post-Enron CEOs, people like Sam Palmasano at IBM or Animal K at Xerox or Jeff Immel at GE, uh, these people have a totally different view. They know that if they play that game by somebody else's rules, they will lose. And so they're stealing themselves to say, no, we're going to do what we want to do. Here's the way we're going to run our company. And we hope you'll buy the stock because it can be a great long-term investment. A good example is Jeff Hamill at GE. He was just ranked the most, his company is the most admired company, and yet for the five, six years he's been in office, the stock price hasn't moved. But everyone sees the wisdom of which he's developing people, 
restructuring the business, putting emphasis on innovation, technology, new businesses like eco-imagination, and on focus on customers. And there's a general acceptance this is a very wise thing to do. And so he gets the admiration of a lot of people, myself included. I think this is true of a lot of this new group of CEOs. Not my generation. It's the new generation. So I'm very encouraged by the kind of leadership they're providing. Look, they're always the bad actors. They're the people, what I call the takers as opposed to giver. ML and these people, okay, these are givers. They see leadership as service and building a great organization that can serve people. If you offered Elma to bundle of money, go to private equity, there's no way you'd do it. He wants to build a great organization that can serve society and humanity. But you have the takers, they just want to get as much out as they can. And they flit from one company to the next, they go get a big fancy contract, and they blow out of their companies and pick up $100 million termination severance. And I don't know why we're choosing them as leaders. These are not the kind of people we should choose. They don't help the employees, they don't help the customers, and they don't help the shareholders. In the end, it's all a facade talking about shareholder value. It's really their value they're trying to build. So I have uh, a real concern that boards still often don't do their job of succession, internal succession, and they wound up being forced to go outside, and they'll hire someone with a contract, a no-cut contract for failure. And that's why the public is so upset about executive compensation. And if we don't get on top of this, there are going to be laws passed regulating compensation. We're going to have more and more problems. And so we in the business community, and that's why I wonder reason I bought the book, need to step up and lead. Thanks very much for, for speaking with us. This is an absolute pleasure. Thanks a lot. Thank you. For more information, please visit our website at knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.